Gratitude and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores living with grief, the gratitude that sustains us, and the greatness we find in connection with others. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Faced with the death of her husband, Carol set the intention of writing each day, revealing the almost unfathomable beauty the world continues to provide, even in widowhood. I speak to Carol about her writing, which she published as a book, Singing Beyond Sorrow, A Year of Grief, Gratitude, and Grace. It was like an art walk in our town. A little time we lived in, in Alaska, and I walked in with a couple of friends, and I saw him across the room. And I'd seen him a couple of places around town before, but hadn't actually caught his eyes. And when I walked in, I was like, okay, wow, who is that? And he happened to be standing with a friend of mine that I knew mostly from work. I just walked up and said hello to her, like intentionally, knowing that she'd introduced me. And she said just the craziest thing. She looked at me, she said, oh my gosh, Carol, have you ever met Michael? No, you know, she introduced us. She said, he's my favorite bachelor in all of Juno." And then she walked away. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good setup. It was perfect, yeah. And so there was this moment where we just kind of looked at each other like, wow, okay, that was awkward. But then all of the awkwardness is already over. Right. And we can just start talking. And we went out to dinner that night went for a walk on the dock and it was snowing and there was just so much perfection in the evening. I don't know about love at first sight, but, you know, love at first evening, maybe by the end of that night, like he was quoting me Keats while we were walking in the snow. And I was just like, wow, how is this possible? And I'd waited so long. I was 36. And kind of at that point in my life where I thought, maybe it's just not going to happen. Been in and out of relationships. The romance, I figured, well, maybe that will happen. But I'm 36 and maybe kids aren't going to happen. Maybe that next phase of my life that I imagined is going to be really different. And then I met him. Oh, I love that story. And so then what happened? I mean, we lived in a small town, about 30,000. And so we started dating. And after the first month, we ended up going down to Seattle actually for a weekend because there's this sense of when you live in a small town, the whole world is watching you fall in love. And that felt really awkward, I think, to both of us. (laughs) And it it was even on that vacation that we took together, we just went down to Seattle for the weekend that we knew, you know, and both of us had been through a lot in our past with relationships and works and moving and whatnot. We just knew. And I was more connected to him within the month or so than I'd ever been connected to anyone in my entire life. Ah. Yeah. So, so your, so your fairy tale began there. Yeah. Let's see, we met in February, the first Friday in February. We were engaged by April. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. You met in... February. And you're engaged in April? In April. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then we got married that September, that fall. And then we were pregnant in December with our son. My life seemed like it was on fast forward. Yeah. In a way that it never had been. Wow. This is all going really fast. And this isn't how I typically operate in the world. Yeah. And yet every time I would check in, it felt so perfectly right in every way, every step that we were taking that, you know, I just went with it. You had your son. Mm -hmm. 
And then your husband, Michael, fell ill quite suddenly. Right. Well, and it was about a year of him just not feeling great and us not really being able to figure out why. Yeah. It's just about five years later. Yeah. And he had some back pain and just, again, things didn't quite feel right, but there was nothing that anybody could put a finger on. And then his physician finally just said, well, you know, let's just kind of run all the tests. And he was diagnosed with aggressive stage four colon cancer. Mm. That was completely unexpected and had metastasized in a way that was surprising and atypical. That's really tough. Yeah. It's interesting, even as we're talking, I kind of feel myself removing myself from that. From that those, from that time? From those, that time, those moments, you know, I'm talking about it rather than... Because it's too hard being in it. Yeah. And it was so unexpected for where we were. And you were in... Your honeymoon still, in love, right? Still, you know, honeymoon with a five-year-old, I guess, but... <laughs> So from the time that you got that diagnosis until, what was that period like post-diagnosis? The first few months were, okay, treatment and figuring all this out and really having a lot of hope. He did quite well on the chemo in the first six months. He worked, went back to work right away, and he was a runner. He used to run marathons, and so he ran every day through chemo. Wow. Tolerated things really well. I mean, he had the most vitality of anyone I've ever met. So that didn't surprise me that he was able to do that. And about six months in, maybe a little longer, he had some complications from the chemotherapy and had to stop that particular one that he was using and they had to switch it, and then that didn't start working. And I think that's where, in those next six months, it really fell into, this isn't going the way we imagined. Mm. And those were really hard times. I mean, our son was five, trying to get a sense of what do we do? And there's so much advice, both from medical professionals and friends and healthcare people that we were seeing, that it was really a confusing and tumultuous time. We came back to each other, you know, things that we knew were good for him and really focusing on, you know, what's best for him at the very core. That got us through some of the tumultuousness, but the last six months were challenging. And then once they stopped all treatment, that last month was mm. nearly impossible. And it's so crazy to me. So you have a doctorate in nursing and you specialize in palliative care as well. Right, right. Part of me is really captivated by the magic of you two being drawn together, like this greater reason you were meant to meet and have this fast track romance. Have you processed that similarly? I have. And the synchronicities of it all, and we're very lighthearted at times, as I think you have to be when you go through something that feels impossible. And I can remember sitting on the back deck when we were really looking at the possibility of discontinuing treatment and looking at palliative care and hospice. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I guess I should have thought twice before I married a hospice nurse. You know, I can laugh, but like, how is this possible? At the time, I had actually gone back to get a master's in psychology to go more into working with the social, emotional, and spiritual places in hospice and palliative care, that that's where I really felt like I was drawn professionally. I graduated from that program in August and was going to set up a private practice. He was diagnosed the first week of October. <sighs> 
did you go into the practice or you were just taking care of him? No, I just took care of him. And, you know, one of the ways that I get through hard times is I walk miles and miles and miles, but just being outside. And I remember walking one day and just looking up and feeling like I'm not going to do this professionally right now. It looks like I'm going to live this. And what does it mean to live this? And how can I live it the most wholeheartedly and mindfully in a way that supports both of us as we go through this? How can we be with each other as we go through this? And how did you? What was that like? Our son was five, and I think that that's a time when parenting can get a little challenging and, you know, had just finished graduate school and he was working full time. So there was a lot of juggling that happened. After he was diagnosed, there was just this reigniting that connection that we had to each other. All the noise in life stopped. Mm. When things would even get challenging, we would just look at each other and be like, there's no room for that. There's no room left for any of that. We really just relied on each other. We read a lot of poetry. Do you remember some of the poems or some of the poets that you were reading? He loved Hafiz Mm. and Rumi. Mm -hmm. There's a poetry book that we both used to love. I think it's called Sacred Voices, but it's a lot of really beautiful poets from all the ages. And I think there was a poem by Rumi talking about if I was asked what moments led me to know God or myself the most, what were they? something to the point of, I wouldn't deny any of the moments that I've had in my life. I would bow to each of them. Mm. Our relationship to each other and his illness and the way we went through that together and the grief that followed has changed me. It changed us as a couple. I think as a couple, the thing that came forward the most was the sense of tapping into something that was deeper than both of us that was created when we were together There's two people, but then the relationship was almost a third. And I don't know if it's because everything happened so fast and we were connected so quickly that I really felt like there was some meaning in us being together. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness. Have you told your friends about us yet? Word of mouth is an important way for us to reach more listeners. So spread the word and consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. And we actually went back and did some coursework together at the school that both of us had graduated from in psychology, working together through his illness, really to look at how do we get through some of those mental, emotional, and spiritual challenges that come up? And how do we be together in that? And I think there was a sense of, you know, being with 200 other people, classmates, who were watching us walk through a really challenging time in life and be really authentic and real and honest and talk about what was hard. There's this juxtaposition when someone is ill where there's the incredible and immediate challenge of the nature of that illness. And then when it's a terminal illness, Right next to that is this incredible preciousness because there's this awareness that this most likely won't last. And we all can hope for that miracle. At the same time, as humans, we will all die. There's something quite precious in that too that carried us. There's a sense of, you know, is there going to be enough time for us? 
And then to know that there's not going to be enough time for us, most likely. Mm-hmm. And how do we want to be in that with each other and with our child? And so if you were to sum up how you were together with each other and with your son, what would those words be? I think the very first one would be wholehearted and wholehearted with everything. I mean, it wasn't all easy or beautiful, but really wholehearted and authentic. I think we really felt like there wasn't space to hide or hold back. And with our son, I think we have some friends coming in town who want to take my son skiing and he's 13. You know, Michael and I both grew up skiing. And so the thought for me that our son is 13, he doesn't know how to ski. There's something in them that's like, oh, I wanted that for him. And while Michael was still quite ill, you know, he went up to the mountain a couple of times and, you did. and went skiing. And wow. he's had a couple of those experiences with his dad. That's beautiful. If he takes off with skiing and he embraces it, he'll have those memories of doing that with his dad. That's right. really cool. Somewhere that's in there. And I think that that's how we were of like, what do we want to create? What's important? Where do we want to go? I'm wondering if there was just this intense urgency around injecting your son with as much exposure experience with dad. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I'm wondering <laughs> if it was overwhelmed of that. I would get really kind of stressed about that. This is too much. I think about Christmas after Michael died, the expectations around Christmas, because Michael wanted to get him everything that he would ever need in his entire life. You know, and he was five. Yeah. We couldn't do it all. We couldn't do everything. Right. He really wanted to go to Hawaii as a family, and we had never gone on a big trip together. I think it was in March we started planning it in my heart. I'm like, this is not a good idea. Mm. This is not going to be good for anybody. Mm. And it was actually finally the hospice nurse that sat me down and said, let me tell you what could happen on the plane or while you're there. It really made me stop and say, okay, what's his current function? I mean, I could see the blinders that I had put on and the blinders that he even more strongly had put on and was really adamant that we were going noticing what that felt like to know we weren't going to have that experience together, Mm. that that wouldn't happen. That sense of going to the store to buy snorkel gear and he could barely get through the store. Yeah. And somehow thinking that it was going to be okay to get on a plane for six hours. The mind bend that happened from the wanting and the hope. Optimism. Denial. Yeah, optimism. And and denial, yeah. Yeah. It informs the work you do today, yeah? A lot of times I was in nurse mode with him, and there'd be moments, okay, I just want to be his wife. I can't do all this. And that had to be kind of a conscious decision. But it was more after he died that I think my work changed right away. What I thought grief would look like And what it actually looked like were completely different. Even with all your education. (laughs) Even with all my education and all my... Work experience. Yeah. And I had worked with families and I had worked in bereavement after. I was kind of already starting to move in that direction. And that had actually happened after my father died when I was 33. There's a lot more subtlety to grief than I ever imagined. That was really informed there. But then... When Michael died, grief turned my life upside down in a way that I could not have imagined professionally. And to start to live that and to realize that if I wanted to stay working in grief and everything that I'd ever been trained for, 
I really wanted to experience what it was really like. I really surrendered into the full experience of grief. Mm. I let go of a lot of the constructs that I had about what grief would look like Mm -hmm. and let myself experience what was happening for me as an individual with this particular relationship with this particular person and this set of circumstances in my life. And again, to realize there's a lot that's very universal in grief. Mm -hmm. And yet there's so much that's very personal, depending on who you are in your relationship and, and what's happened. It was inconceivable to me that the world went on. Mm-hmm. when my world had completely stopped. You know, you get up the morning after, and what do you do? It's like you get up and you feed the dog and you make tea. Even those small things of your own personal life felt so foreign. Like ridiculous. Ridiculous. It was almost like an out-of-body experience. Like, how am I doing this? I shouldn't be doing this. And then to even step out into my own neighborhood birds shouldn't still be flying and people shouldn't still be putting their garbage out and going to the grocery store. And it just seemed like the world should stop. Yeah. At least for a minute. That is such an insightful commentary on what it's like to be deeply in mourning, deeply grieving, because the world doesn't stop. And I think particularly in our culture, everything goes on per usual We're looking at the watch. There's so much time you got to get through this. And then we're expecting you're going to be back with us again. And you'll be rolling your garbage can out to the corner like the rest of us. Yeah. And even before that comes in, I mean, I think about, I'm not ready to call the funeral home. There were so many things that I was like, I'm not. And to realize that as a hospice nurse, I had done that (laughs) hundreds of times. Yeah walked in and helped the person call. But to be in it, I can't do that. Right. And then you do it. I mean, you know, you take the steps that you need to take or, you know, and then you go and you visit the funeral home and you talk about the plans that he had made for cremation and how we're going to do it. But it just feels absurd, right? It feels so strange. Yeah. You know that it's there. And even as much as we had talked about it, which a lot of people don't, even to face that moment with as much information that I had and as much talking as we had done to face that moment and go, I'm not ready. Is my son ready? I think I had spent so much time, how do we live until he dies? Mm -hmm. That when he died, I didn't know how to live. Mm. And then it was, you get up, you make tea, you do yoga, you feed the dog. Just one tiny step at a time. You kept a diary. Had you already had a diary or did you just start when Michael passed? I mean, I've always written since I was little, but in the postgraduate work that we were doing, I was actually using a gratitude journal as a way of working through my days. After he died, even the day after he died, I started writing. I had stopped, I think in that last month, Writing for me is like yoga and tea and walking the dog. It's those things that I do that got me through the days. And so writing at the end of every day was just how I got through the day. I don't think that I consciously knew that I was continuing to write about gratitude. I was just dumping all of the feelings and all the grief and never realizing that it was going to turn into a book. Singing Beyond Sorrow, A Year of Grief, Gratitude, and Grace. 
It's a really beautiful book. I think it's something very useful for anyone who's freshly experiencing it. Mm, Thank you. And I think writing from that perspective of gratitude, not only is that so friggin' tough when you've gone through something like that, but so incredibly helpful. I have clean water to drink and this comforter feels really nice and the sky is blue today. You know, we live in Portland, so that's that's a gift. So it wasn't like gratitude for huge things. It was gratitude for like the small things right in front of me. Yeah. That's one of the things that really came through and I think comes out through the book is that sense of the small kindnesses. That's where the grace comes in. Me being able to write about grief and to just be writing into my journal, the sense of this is really hard and I feel really anxious and I feel really alone and you know all the things that I was getting triggered by just by trying, you know, we were talking about like, how do you live? And then you go out and you try to live and the world just has all these buffetings that happen through the days. There was that checker at the grocery store who noticed that things were a little off, you know, and they'd seen me how many ever times in the past years and didn't really do anything but smile and be kind. The noticing of that, writing those gratitudes, I think tapped me into a place of what I call grace, what I think connects all of us as human beings is just that source of kindness, of loving, of attention and caring to each other that gets me through. Yeah. No matter what the hard time is, if someone gives me a moment of kindness or I see a moment in nature that touches me in a way, it helps my heart carry on. Yeah. So something deeper. Don't you feel like when you're in this space... I feel like I see things that it'd be easy to miss. Right. Nature, seeing things in nature that touch your heart. You can easily be closed off to seeing so many things. And I think it's easy to do, especially in an experience like grief. Yeah. Because the emotions are so big that the temptation to numb to those feelings is really strong and really valid. Of course, that hurts. Mm -hmm. Do we want to go into that? When we close ourselves off to that, we simultaneously close ourselves off to those places that touch our heart as well. Yeah. When my dad was sick and he had a brain tumor and didn't live long after Mm -hmm. he was diagnosed, but I remember walking along this path up towards the mountains and seeing a penny on the ground and the sun was shining on this penny in such a beautiful way oh my gosh, this can't be happening, is what I was thinking as I was walking, right? And I looked down, there's this penny with the light shining on it. And I picked the penny up because it felt like a gift. Like (laughs) the tiniest thing, I felt like a gift. And when I picked it up, I had this awareness of two sides of the coin, you know, all these cliches that we use, but it was like, oh, this is it. These are the two sides. If I let myself feel, then I'm also going to feel the beauty. I'm going to see the sun shining on a penny. Or I'm going to see the other things as well. I feel like there's an awareness that opens up within something that is as deep and, dare I say, sacred as grief. If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude, and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. 
You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three. So you're struggling with losing the love of your life, moving forward as a single mom, deeply grieving, having to be the sole breadwinner, the sole parent of your child. That's a lot of responsibility to layer on top of the self-attention required when you're grieving. But you also have this additional responsibility of helping your child through this grief process. Whoa. Yeah. I think I wanted to know that he was grieving correctly or that I was doing what he needed. But it's almost as if he would wait for me to be moderately okay Mm -hmm. in order to express what was going on for him. He wasn't falling apart. When I would kind of be like, got myself together, you know, we can do this. It was almost as if there was then room for him to grieve. I don't know exactly how that went, but I do know that the more I took care of myself, the more I let myself express grief, I think he felt there was finally room for him to grieve. Mm. There was also room for me to be able to attend to him in grief. As a parent, and actually just as someone going through grief, and especially because of my background, this sounds terrible, but I wanted to do it right. Like I thought there was going to be some right way to do all of this. And as it turned out, I was totally overwhelmed. Oh, yeah. By especially how to parent through grief and how to be there for him. And I realized that the number one thing for him was that I let him express it at the level that he was expressing it. Because for him, and and I've noticed this with other kids who are grieving as well, is that they will express something in grief And then when they've had enough, they will play. Mm. He would start to express something. And for him, mostly it came out as being angry, Mm. as something that happened at school. But I feel like it was triggering into a place of some of the underlying narratives that we have as adults, like this isn't fair Mm -hmm. or this hurts or, you know, what all those things. But it was expressing as a child in frustration. And then that frustration would turn to the emotion underneath of sadness. Yeah. And he would express that. And then he would hop in the bathtub and start playing with his toys. As a parent, I should do something. There should be more. I should ask more questions. There must be something more that we need to do. And as it was, that was the best rhythm for Mm -hmm. us was for him to express. And then for me not to push more questions, more wonderings, but to just be there to create a container Mm -hmm. for his grief to emerge. Yeah. I heard something on NPR recently, a child processes grief just like they eat an apple. So they'll take a bite, put the apple down, run around, come back, take another bite of the apple, drop the apple on the floor, rolls around on the yeah. floor for a while. <laughs> so perfect. <laughs> Go back, have another bite. And that's just how children process things, mm-hmm. just like in small doses. I imagine that grief for your son resurfaces. It's different at every age, right? Because as his awareness grows, he's becoming more aware of his experience without his dad. Right. And I have seen him developmentally grieve 
And especially in the beginning, you know, he was still young enough. There was this awareness of, is he really gone? Mm -hmm. You know, kind of still in that, not completely magical thinking, but I think it was about a year after Michael died that it was like, dad's not coming back. Mm -hmm. And that's actually when he needed the most support. And we ended up going to the Dougie Center for Grieving Children here in Portland, which is incredible and gives kids the space both to play and express and have big feelings, lots of room for big feelings. And for him, it was really important at that age to know that there were other kids who had had that experience. Because for him at school and in his social group, everybody else had their dad. Mm. Yeah, I remember him telling me once, you don't know what it's like to be the only kid without a dad. How heartbreaking. And I had, I mean, I can still see him in the hallway telling me that. You're right. I don't know what that's like. And all I could do was be there for him and be grateful that he had the capacity to express that. Right. To me, to know that that's what felt hard in that moment. Mm -hmm. He's 13 now. So beginning to see as he grows more into a man, how it impacts him and his story, his way of being in the world. What do you do for yourself to be present in this world? I've begun to really understand and define for myself and pay attention to what feels comforting and what feels nourishing. Oh, that's good. And that there's a vast difference. Like a tub of ice cream feels really comforting. Comforting, right. (laughs) (laughs) And a nice big bowl of soup feels nourishing. Gotcha. And to just notice without judgment when am I just seeking comfort? Mm. Because to me, when I'm seeking comfort, it's because I'm maxed out. Yeah. I'm over the line. And it's actually something that Michael used to say to me all the time, especially when we first started parenting. He's like, you can't give from your core. He would actually notice that before I would. And so thank goodness he started to instill in me, what does it feel like when I'm giving from my core? And that's when I want comfort. Mm -hmm. And that's when I think I can probably need comfort without a lot of judgment or self-flagellation. Could be so hard on myself for that. Those comforts of whether it's food or Netflix or things that Mm -hmm. are numbing, I guess I would say. Yeah. You know, so maybe it's maybe I don't want to use the word comfort. Maybe I should use numbing to give comfort a break a little bit. Yeah, but I, I like the pairing of those two. Yeah, because they're different. They're so mm-hmm. different. Whereas nourishment is a little bit proactive. Right. It's not just getting through. And I think that as time has gone on, I've been able to shift away from comfort, which is how do I just get through this? Comfort both physically or even emotionally and and socially, oh my goodness, either avoiding social situations or shutting down or pretending, so much pretending. Uh, That's the the worst, the pretending, right? Right. Pretending is more comfortable sometimes than being authentic. And then asking myself on all those different levels, if it's social, emotional, spiritual, physical, what's actually nourishing for me? What supports me? What speaks to me in this moment that I'm in that will actually bring me forward as a person in a really authentic and real way? So what is something that nourishes you right now? Like, what do you love? I always talk about being outside because that's where I go. You know, if I can take the afternoon off and go for a hike with my dog, that's nourishing. Yeah. 
at a deep way. The other thing for me is singing. And I play music as well. I used to play the guitar, but now I play the ukulele. There's something about singing uh-huh. um, and music in general can shift my way of being in the world completely and in a moment. Like no matter how I feel, if I start singing and I sing in an acapella group, so especially singing in community uh-huh. where what you have in common is the activity rather than stories of your life or anything right. else. It's like we just come together in a harmonic way that changes everything. That's so um, cool. That's the thing. Like if I'm singing, then nourishment is on the calendar. The reason I learned the guitar is because I wanted to accompany myself to be able to sing, just to sing more often, mm-hmm. like around the campfire or whatever. But actually, when we went to Hawaii, the trip that we never so were able to go. take, my son and I, and I have an older stepson, and my mom and I went, and I took the afternoon and went and found a ukulele. Oh, how cool. Yeah. I'm so glad you guys got to do that trip. We did, yeah. Like so many things, after loss, it was bittersweet. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, there were amazing moments and experiences. And then there were times it was like, ah, he should be here. And that was just a year, not even quite a year after. And now it's been, it'll be seven years in May. And there are still so many times where I'm like, he should be here. Mm -hmm. He should see this, be experiencing this with us. There was a time when it shifted from me being sad for me Mm -hmm. that he wasn't there. Yeah. To strangely left me being sad for him that he wasn't there. Because he was missing things. Because he was missing it. Yeah. It's harder for me that he didn't get to experience this. Because he loved life. Oh my goodness, he loved life so much. There was something about that when I recognized that moment, it's like, oh, that means we're okay. (sighs) Right? Like hard as it still is, we're okay. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503-454-6646 or send us a message via the contact link at grief gratitudegreatness.com Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.